Umbreen Khan, and this is inspired by Interfaith Voices. As a young man, Itamar Ben Gavir was a disciple of the infamous extremist Rabbi Mayor Kahani, the founder of the Jewish Defense League, an organization whose members committed numerous acts of violence and terror. Members like Israeli American Baruch Goldstein during the Festival of Purim in 1994. The Israeli American doctor Baruch Goldstein opened fire and murdered 29 Palestinians kneeling in prayer in a mosque in Hebron. It became known as the Cave of the Patriarchs Massacre. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Jewish Defense League defended Goldstein and praised the murders as preventive action. To a young Itamar Ben-Gavir, Baruch Goldstein was a hero. Ben-Gavir's views were deemed too radical and extreme, and he was rejected by the Israeli Defense Force from serving. Until two years ago, Ben Gavir kept Goldstein's photo in his living room. He took it down recently under political pressure. It was the only way his political party could join a new far-right alliance of religious Zionists in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. In a Facebook post, he said, I'm declaring that for the sake of unity and right-wing victory in the elections, I'm removing the photograph in my living room. The decision paid off. Today, he leads the Religious Zionist Party, along with Bezel Smotrich. The two far-right leaders have newfound powers thanks to an alliance with newly elected Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Back in November, during elections in Israel, the Religious Zionist Party, known as Tekomba, doubled its representation in Parliament from 6 to 14. That made it the third largest party in the Knesset. Without the Religious Zionist Party, Netanyahu would not have the votes to create a governing coalition. Now, leaders of the far right in Israel hold strategic leadership positions and sway over policy because of the fragile nature of the majority. Ben Gavir is the Minister of National Security. And Bezalel Smotrich, leader of the Religious Zionist Party, he's the new finance minister. And in the last two weeks, both have taken provocative actions, suggesting they are very serious about moving their ideological agenda forward. In a recent editorial that ran in the Religion News Service, Palestinian journalist Daoud Kutab warns that Israel's democratic future is threatened by the theocratic ambitions of the extreme right, whose leaders, he says, have some now unprecedented powers. He's received the International Press Freedom Award from the Committee to Protect Journalists for his work. He's also the author of Sesame Street Palestine and writes for several publications and recently launched a community radio initiative in Amman, Jordan. I spoke to him from Amman. You wrote uh, a provocative opinion piece warning that Israel and the provocations of its new leadership uh, pose a threat to the region. So I would love to talk with you about that today. Sure. Happy to do that. I think what is happening is that in Israeli uh, elections, return to power, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu um, is uh, facing four corruption charges. And in Israel, a minister cannot be in the government, but a prime minister can be in government even if he's charged. 
so um, what Netanyahu is trying to do is to try to change the legal structure in such a way that the Israeli High Court, which is respected by many and is the part of the checks and balances in Israel, cannot uh, basically overrule a decision or a law passed by the Knesset. And he has a slight majority in his coalition, and so that's what he's trying to do. As part, because he is so uh, intent on staying out of jail, he basically has compromised a lot of uh, most leaders' uh, positions, and he's basically uh, has become a very weak leader because he has to uh, keep his coalition in order. And to keep his coalition in order, the very extreme can basically blackmail him for certain things. And one of the things that I wrote about was that um, the new uh, minister for interior or police or what they call the national uh, police minister uh, is a right-wing Kahana follower, former Kahana follower who is a very racist uh, former Jewish uh, rabbi. And uh, his main intention, because his party's basic platform, is to change the status quo on Al-Aqsa Mosque, which the Jews consider the Temple Mount. And this uh, minister, Tamar Ben-Gvir, uh, basically uh, has been trying to um, allow prayers by Jews on the third holiest mosque in Islam, or 1.5 billion Muslims uh, considered to be a, a Muslim shrine that has been in hands of the Muslims for 13 centuries. And so as a result, he's trying to change what we call the standing orders or the status quo by uh, his visit. And his visit has been, you know, condemned because he visited the mosque without basically coordinating with the local administrators. It's administered by uh, Islamic Council, which is appointed by the Jordanian government and whose staff is paid by the Jordanian government. So this created a, a major problem, and basically the United Nations Security Council has been debating this issue because it's become such a big issue. That was not the first time in Israeli history for the sacred site to become the essentially like a flashpoint over political conflicts within the region where this very religious um, sacred site, as you mentioned, becomes the backdrop of a political stunt. Absolutely. In uh, two, the year 2000, uh, Bill Clinton, who was president of the U.S. at the time, tried to uh, organize uh, some kind of an agreement. And one of the sticking issues was uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque. And at that time, Ariel Sharon from the Likud party wanted to uh, make a political uh, stand. So he, uh, again, like uh, Ben Gvir, he made a very provocative visit with lots of Israeli soldiers uh, trampling all over Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that uh, produced very strong, violent reaction by Palestinians, which then was put down very violently by the Israelis. And it caused what is called the Al-Aqsa Intifada or the Second Intifada for about three years after that date. Palestinians and Israelis were killed or injured, and it, it really pushed back the peace process that had been, uh, many people were expecting to be moving in the process in forward ways. So yes, two, 22 years ago, there was a flashpoint, and people are really worried that this tinderbox uh, is going to blow up again because it combines the two most emotional issues, nationalism and religious fundamentalism. And it's very scary because it's going to train, turn our conflict, which is largely 
an Israeli-Palestinian political conflict into a religious war, and that could have really very bad effects for a long time. Mm. The 20-year-old history that you're just describing must be familiar to Israelis and to the Israeli leadership. Yes, and uh, Mr. Netanyahu, Prime Minister, uh, made sure that uh, uh, when he signed the coalition agreement, they had a, a statement saying that they will not change the status quo. And uh, when Ben Gvir was asked, are you for changing the status quo, he, he mumbled and he didn't make an answer. So um, on the one hand, yes, the Israeli government uh, publicly is not for changing the status quo. It had promised, Netanyahu had promised uh, uh, the U.S. leadership and others that they will not change. But Ben Gvir doesn't feel like he's bound by anything because, again, as I said earlier, he has the power because he has 12 members of Knesset in a, in a very thin coalition of the government, if he decides to, uh, to move out of the government, they would, the Netanyahu government would fall. So Netanyahu is very, very vulnerable to these kind of pressures. And he walks a very thin line of trying to keep his coalition in, in power, yet at the same time trying to avert a holy war and trying to avert uh, anger of the U.S. and other allies. And where are Israelis on this issue? How are Israelis reacting in the streets? Um, yesterday, there was a huge demonstration, and not necessarily because of this problem alone, uh, but uh, because also the, the change of the uh, judiciary system, where the judiciary system will no longer be able to put any checks and balances on the legislative system, has really angered many Israelis. The demonstration yesterday in Tel Aviv said, uh, you know, this country is for everyone or something to that effect. And it's uh, countering what Ben Gvir is saying is that this is a country for Jews. And it's not just about Jews and Arabs. It's also because many secular Jews are worried about uh, the religious taking more power. Uh, Orthodox Jews want to change the law so that reformed Jews in America will not... Um, be qualified as Jews and things like that is really angering many Israelis. But uh, Netanyahu still has the power because he has the majority in the Knesset. He has 64 supporters out of 120. And so he's still in power, but it's a very thin majority. And some of the public is very angry with this. Can you talk a little bit about that political party, especially for American listeners who I suspect, like myself, don't follow so closely the political parties within Israel? Yeah, Ben Gvir uh, runs or heads a party called Jewish Power, and it was really uh, at one time uh, not allowed to run in the Knesset. He himself uh, was not allowed to enlist in the Israeli army because of his racist views. Uh, but in the last elections, Netanyahu needed him, and so Netanyahu basically helped him get into the Knesset, and then he kept helping him uh, get power. And, and once he got into the Knesset, he became much more popular. He had only four seats in the last Knesset, now he has 12 seats. So his power has increased because he's very um, provocative. You know, he goes to wherever there is any Palestinian event, and he tries to kind of bully the Palestinians, and that made him very popular among many Israelis. And so that's a problem that Netanyahu basically brought on himself the uh, strengthening of this far-right uh, racist uh, party that at one time the Israeli government did not allow to run for elections because it's so racist. Yeah. 
You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan in conversation with Daoud Katab. He's an award-winning journalist based these days in Amman, Jordan. Over the years, Katab has worked for press freedoms, covering Israel and Palestine, earning him the International Peace Award from the Committee to Protect Journalism. His news stories and editorials continue to be featured in news outlets around the globe, including the Religion News Service. In a recent editorial, he raised concerns about the events taking place in Israel and how they are threatening Israeli democracy. Let's get back to the conversation. What has the global response been to the events of the last five days in Israel? Yeah. Um, first of all, the, the Jordanians and the Jordanian Hashemite uh, leadership of the king is the uh, custodian of the holy places in Jerusalem. So uh, that was the first reaction. The Jordanians summoned the Israeli ambassador in Amman and they issued a very strong statement against uh, what happened. But also the king flew to the United Arab Emirates and Netanyahu had announced after he won the, uh, became a prime minister that one of his first visits will be to the United Arab Emirates. So the King went to Abu Dhabi, and soon enough, uh, Abu Dhabi basically canceled the visit and didn't allow Netanyahu to come. Also, the United Arab Emirates um, is a member of the UN Security Council, and so uh, under uh, advice of the Arab uh, members, the United Arab Emirates submitted a complaint in the United Nations Security Council, and there, there began a discussion which most members have basically uh, called for respecting the status quo and not changing anything on Al-Aqsa Mosque. So it has become an international issue, certainly an Arab issue, and things are very hot in the Middle East because uh, Palestinians have been warning if this is continuing or is repeated, there might be uh, some rockets coming out of Gaza and Palestinians have said that they will not be quiet if their holy site is being trampled on. How much attention are you seeing dedicated to this issue? I think there's a lot of uh, attention, a lot of following. And uh, of course, the problem in, in, in some of these cases is that we know that there is a strong popular opposition to it, but governments many of them who are also allies of, of the U.S. and with other Western countries, try to keep a, a low profile. But the people themselves, and we saw this during the World Cup in, in Doha, when uh, almost in every game uh, there were people raising the Palestinian flag in the stands, and when the Arab teams won, they even Morocco and, and others raised the Palestinian flag next to their own national flag. So the Palestinian issue is very, very popular among the peoples now. With governments, they are much more hesitant uh, to do that for political, economic, and reasons of being allies of the U.S. and in some cases having normalized relations with Israel, like in the United Arab Emirates and, and other countries. I want to bring attention to a news article that I just saw in which uh, Ben Gavir has since the rallies that occurred over the weekend in Tel Aviv has now ordered the removal of Palestinian flags from public spaces. What is happening around Palestinian flags? Uh, the Israeli law does not uh, forbid raising flags. It's considered part of the freedom of expression. And so his orders to the police actually are illegal. There's no law that bans raising the Palestinian or any other flag. Uh, but 
he's the minister of police and he can do basically what he wants. The uh, The problem is not the flag, but the problem is what the flag represents. And I think we have a really big problem here in that uh, the disconnect between Israelis and Palestinians is widening. And one of the areas where this disconnect is most uh, visible is in the area of the Israelis refusing to recognize Palestinian nationalism. You know, in 1993, when the Oslo Accords were signed at the White House, Israel and Palestine exchanged letters of recognition. Israel recognized the PLO and the PLO recognized Israel. And, you know, at the time, Israeli and Palestinian flags were raised. I remember watching Israeli television and they had small Israeli and Palestinian flags. So that was fine. But now, for some reason, now we are kind of back to the pre-Oslo period when the uh, recognition or solidarity with Palestinians or with the PLO is becoming uh, illegal or or unallowed. In his public statements, he is stating that he is directing the law enforcement to view the raising of Palestinian flags as symbols of terrorism. Well, he could say whatever he wants, but the law is not with him. He's not acting within the law. And that's where the problem is. And not only with the Palestinians, but also with the Israelis, is that there is an attempt to uh, bypass the Israeli court system, the judicial system, by making the executive power the uh, ultimate power in, in, in the government and having uh, no role for the uh, judiciary to, to decide uh, illegality of laws and so on. So, yes, what the minister did is not legal. It will be challenged probably in the courts, but if the Israeli uh, parliament succeeds in uh, usurping the power of the courts, then if that succeeds, they might not be able to stop the decisions of the executive. It's very trying times for many Israelis and Jewish nationalism is taking over in a kind of exclusive way against all the people. So Israel doesn't recognize that it is a country for its citizens. It's a country for the Jewish people and other non-Jews have rights, but not the same as Jews. And and that's that's the sign of a theocracy rather than a democracy. Those terms are very significant. This is also the cradle of sacred spaces for the Christian community as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly we are, last week, for example, uh, we ran a story about uh, Protestant tombs, some of the British uh, Christians who died in Jerusalem. Uh, their, their, the cemetery was uh, desecrated uh, in it. was filmed all on video of two uh, young men wearing the, the Jewish um, uh, symbols, the kippah and, and the other things. Uh, you know, that was really scary. And it, it took a while for eventually the government of Israel uh, criticized that. And the next day they apparently arrested those two guys. But even on Christmas, people from Gaza were not able to come to uh, Bethlehem. People from Jordan are not able to come. Uh, so there is a problem there. I wonder, because of religious affiliation changes, the rise of secularism among uh, Israelis, and the exhaustion that many have expressed over the conflict and the violence and the peace efforts that have been underway for many, many years among NGOs, civic organizations, religious groups, even soft initiatives like, you know, the Sesame Street Project. So. Talk to me a little bit about that distinction. Where are the people 
And where are the leaders? What is the distinctions that you see standing out most critically right now? Yes, you are absolutely right that there is a schism. There is a huge schism that's going on in Israel between secular and religious Jews, but also between leaders and, and the population. And the population, like in some countries, you've you've had your own and now Brazil has had their own. You have the demagogic uh, right-wing uh, leaders who basically try to, uh, to, to lie their way into power, uh, basically. And, uh, and so... Uh, Will that, you know, will that power continue? Will Israel continue against its own democracy to Jews? I mean, Israel, you said, uh, you know, a number of ways, but, you know, half the population living in areas under Israeli control are not allowed to vote. The Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and even East Jerusalem cannot vote for the the person or the government or the coalition that runs their lives because there are uh, Palestinians without the citizenship rights. And that's why... People are saying if Israel doesn't want the two-state solution where Palestinians have a separate state, then they must accept the one-state solution where everybody has equal rights. So either marry us or divorce us, but you cannot leave us in in between in this no-man's land or no-woman's land. So that's a huge problem, and uh, everyone is talking about how to get out of this cycle of violence and cycle of rare lack of recognition. The Israelis don't know what to do with the Palestinians because if they would give up, Palestinians' rights, then that would change the, the demography of Israel. At the same time, they're refusing to give Palestinians uh, freedom and let them go. A few days ago, $39 million that are collected on behalf of the Palestinians and taxes to the Palestinians, and they are restricting the movement of Palestinian officials. So there's a lot going on uh, in, in all the levels, both on the Al-Aqsa Mosque area, but also in the political level. And the U.S., Officially and publicly, is not happy with what's happening. But until now, there isn't anything going on that we know that is going to force the Israelis to to respect international law. You're describing a retaliatory move uh, after the request to the United Nations to intervene, and that that retaliatory effect is financial, essentially cutting off the treasury. You're describing the impact on sacred symbols and on movement and on representation of identity, including flying that flag. There are a lot of places within society now, you're talking economic, you're talking spiritual, religious, you're talking political, you're talking um, interpersonal. How concerned are you that this is going to lead to, to violence? I'm very concerned, and many people are concerned, do with the situation where when people have nothing to look forward to, when people's hope is, is diminished, when there is desperation and helplessness and, and no uh, political horizon, people then do things that they wouldn't do in a normal situation. Basically, there's no hope. And so political leaders around the world always know that they have to keep their own public to give them hope. But nobody's giving Palestinians hope. You know, we've not had any negotiations to ending the occupation. There's nothing talking about the Palestinian nationalism. It's only about Jewish nationalism. And that is really scary. You know, you have 7 million Jewish Israelis and 7 million Palestinian Arabs, some living in Israel, some living in the West Bank and Gaza. And, you know, they're not going anywhere. You know, Palestinians are not going to disappear tomorrow and Israelis are not disappearing tomorrow. So we have to find a solution. 
and it has to be a political solution. The Israelis think that if they really wrap up the oppression and things, Palestinians would surrender. They're not going to surrender. They've not surrendered in the past. They're not going to surrender now. What is needed is a, is a normal, sane solution that allows people to have dignity. You know, you cannot have dignity when you're being enslaved, when another power is using military might to control your life, to control where you go, to control everything about your, your own uh, future. Daoud Khattab is a former Ferris professor of journalism at Princeton University. While at Princeton, he taught a seminar on new media in the Arab world. He is also an award-winning journalist. His leadership in media freedom efforts in the Middle East have earned him global recognition. In addition to his reporting and analysis, he currently leads AmanNet and produces news and commentary for community radio from Amman, Jordan. To find links to his writing and the articles we referenced in this conversation, please visit interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in finding out more about our guests, please head over to interfaithradio.org. And while you're there, you can learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the podcast where you can subscribe and listen and take us on the go. This week's episode was produced by Kimberly Winston, Kevin McCarthy, and myself. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, MC Yogi for our theme music, and additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well. I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week. <music>